Welcome back to Finnegan's Take. This is Conversation 6. I call it the methodology. How did Jerry succeed at getting guns and criminals off the street? What were his methods, the tools, the tricks? This is the conversation that details the inner workings of the TAC team and Jerry's playbook. A playbook he did not invent, but used and improved upon. We start when Jerry goes back to the 7th District because the gang crimes unit is shut down due to some rogue cops who were indicted for selling guns and drugs to gang members. Here we go. Here's the start of that conversation. Number six, the methodology. Gang crimes, the unit, gang crimes north, south, and west, the combined unit was shut down after a scandal occurred where an officer and his partner were implicated in selling narcotics and guns to gang members. At which time, my lieutenant asked, they gave forms out, and you had choices to go to whichever district you wanted to go back to. I chose to go back to the 7th District. So I went back to the 7th District, and I was put on the gang tactical team. At that time, I was working with nine other individuals on that unit. And our sergeant was a guy named Corwin Calhoun. They called him Corky. Great guy. Really, really enjoyed working for him. We had a lot of fun in that district. Roughly what year is this? 93. 1993. We had heard not about the unit being shut down, but about the, the investigation. This guy was arrested by the feds and his partner. So they disbanded the gang crime unit. They retained about approximately 100 guys and started the special operations unit. I was one of the guys who was not picked in the initial 100 guys. Which I was kind of surprised, but no big deal. A lot of guys made phone calls to stay there. And I was not part of the, the hostage barricade team at that time, or I would have been able to stay there, which was the predecessor to SWAT. I ended up going back to seven. I picked seven, got on a team, uh, had a number of good guys on that team that I worked with as a teammate, uh, recovered a lot of guns. I think our first year that we recovered like close to a hundred guns. And going after guns, was there a methodology as to how you would do it? Or was it by luck that you would get guns? Meaning you'd pull somebody over and there'd happen to be a gun in a car. So you'd go, let's pull over a bunch of people. Or did you have a strategy of knowing where the guns are and how to get them? It was actually with a number of ways that we got the guns. Initially, curb the curb is what you call it. You're street stopping cars. You're getting out on people that are on the street. Get guys running. They throw the gun. Take them into custody. Getting guys with sizable amounts of drugs and guns. They would give us additional information uh, or reduce search warrants at that time. Lead us to a house that they knew, uh, in fact, had more guns in it. So we'd go to those houses to get additional guns. And so we were, I mean, we had pretty good success at it. And the thing was, for every gun you took off the street, it was always the gun that replaced it. There were so many guns that I had to have it, truly. Every day, would you get a gun off the street? Yes, pretty much. Pretty much. At least one. And the thing was, you could work chasing dope to try to get dope arrest. In the grand scheme of things, yeah, dope kills people. The actions that lead to the dope business, people are killed because other gangs or other gang members kill each other because of the money being made. 
the territory. But the guns are what causes the death. So that's what we planned on targeting. And that's what the, actually, that's what the administration, the mayor, and all the way from the top of the police department down, that's what they wanted was guns. So basically, we would go out every day and seek guns. There was so much going on, you know, continual shootings and murders that that's what drove us was the guns. So as long as you were getting guns off the street, you and everyone above you was happy. And that was the demarcation line for success. Is that accurate? Right on the money. Because it, getting those guns, it's something that we liked. You would get excited because you're taking guns off the street. You know what guns are capable of. They can kill a policeman. They can kill a child. Innocent people. They're also used by you know guys out there sticking people up. You're not winning the war on drugs deal by getting guys on the street, 20 bags of dope or 10 bags of dope. For 10 bags of crack, there's a million more. You could get these guns also by getting people for drugs because you would squeeze them for information. These guys didn't want to go to jail. They didn't want to go to prison. A lot of more felons already. So they would be more than happy to give you information as long as you insured them want to give up that message source. Explain that to me. So you would bust somebody for a gun with the intent that they were a level up to somebody that had more guns or was doing worse than them? And then you let that person go? No. Well, no, we did not let them go. What we did was we locked them up. Whether it was right or not, if these guys were felons, they did not want to go to prison. So they would generally give you information on somebody else. Even people with dope would give you people that had guns. We didn't say, listen, give us a house with more dope in it. Who cares? We said, give us somebody with guns because that's what we wanted. We wanted guns. Our bosses wanted guns. City Hall wanted guns. It reflected all the way up by getting these guns off the streets. It was something that a mayor could sink his teeth into and say, look, my guys are out here citywide doing this. All these police districts and are taking guns off the street. And by curbing violence, by taking those guns off the street. But truly, Neil, it really didn't curb the violence because for every gun they took off the street, like I said, there were so many to replace. They had these straw purchases by people going to Tennessee or Georgia or gun shows somewhere else and bringing these guns up. And these were legitimate people who had FOID cards or no background, no criminal background. And they would make money by purchasing these weapons for the gangs. Was that legal at the time or illegal? Oh, no, it's completely illegal. You cannot purchase a weapon and transfer that gun knowingly to somebody. It's against the law. It's against federal law. It's against state law. Uh, if you purchase a gun, Jane Doe purchases a gun, that gun's going to belong to Jane Doe. Now, if Jane Doe purchases five guns somewhere, ten guns somewhere, and that happens at these gun shows at the time, I mean, it's, it's more stringent now. But at one time or another, they would make these straw purchases and then come back and sell those guns, and they'd get three times what they were paying for them, sometimes four times. We targeted guns because guns were the root of all evil. We had a good run, very good success at it. And they would keep statistics on the board down there. They had a whiteboard. So it was kind of a competition. 
this is like a hard charging type a today what today with a, mm-hmm. i wouldn't call it but some would call it toxic masculinity isn't it part of executing the laws on the books to protect people against gun violence you're the tip of the spear to execute the laws mm-hmm. around illegal guns and people getting killed by guns. This is a good thing. Right. You could pass all these gun right. control laws, but what do they matter if there isn't somebody like Jerry Finnegan on the street going to get the right. guns off the street? I was fortunate enough to be motivated enough to do that. It, it excited me to get guns. I loved it. It was just, that was the deal. I mean, it's nice to get somebody for, a, for an armed robbery or somebody for a shooting. I mean, that's that's a great arrest, too. Or a murder, you can't top that. It's the top of the food chain. But the guns are, that was my forte. I just had a knack for it. Some of the guys I worked with, the same thing. That's what we did. We were just gun guys. And it's funny because they had, they had gun teams in the areas, too. Like, at that time, it was area one through six. So they would put up these gun teams too. And I would venture to say our numbers were probably as competitive or better than some of the gun teams in the city because we were tearing it up. I mean, just tearing it up. They hated us. These gangbangers hated us. They hated it. It was easy to, they could have marked us, set us up, like killed us. But the three of us, a lot of times, Ed and I and Brian would drive a brown uh, Chevy Impella. It was the, the old square box ones the box ones, they called it. We drove that car, and I'm going to tell you, that when they saw that brown Chevy box, Chevy Impella coming down the street, man, they were they were shitting their pants. Because a lot of those guys knew we were, man, we were going to hunt them down. And it was funny. It really was. It got to the point, too, where you would get guys with dope, and we'd flip them. We'd flip them for the guns. And that's not legal. But it worked. And I didn't care, like I said. I could care less about a guy having uh, 60 uh, rocks on him, you know, crack rocks. If he can give me a house with three or four guns in it, I could care less about that dope. Tell me what was not legal, and then tell me how you got to the point of accepting that you were doing something illegal. Initially, did you go, oh, I shouldn't be doing this because this is illegal? Or after time, you just, you erased that line? Of course we knew it was illegal, but I didn't care because here's the thing. I would say that by getting these guys, I get a guy out there selling crack and we catch them. We'd set up with binoculars in an abandoned house down the block and watch them and then see where he was going. Because they're not going to keep it on him. So they're going to hide it, put it up in some aluminum siding. So they'll walk in and out of the gangway. You know, they're hiding it up in the aluminum siding. Or they got it up on a post, up under a porch, and you can see them going under. I mean, who the fuck's going to keep walking going under a porch? So you know they're hiding dope under there. So then we just walk down, get in our car that was a block away, and drive slowly down the street, and he would—he didn't have anything on him, so he wasn't worried. And then pull up on him, get out, go right to where he had the dope, and take him and put him in the car, and you know, start talking to him. 
listen, dude, we don't want to take you to jail for dope. I could care less. We're not winning the war on dope. So we would say, give us some guns. Give us a house that's got some guns in it. Now, I don't know about you, but I mean, put myself in that person's position. I'm going to give you a house with guns, Neil. Then I'm not going to go to Cook County or go back to the penitentiary because I got conviction already for selling dope. So was it legal? Absolutely not. But the guns are what's killing people. And let me just put it this way. I wasn't the only one doing it. Okay. This was going on everywhere. Pause for a second. Let's parse this out because I, I don't quite understand this. The thing that is illegal is that you didn't arrest him? That's correct. That's correct. So we're trading dope for guns. And my justification, and, and this is my justification, dope, yeah, of course, it leads people to do things they shouldn't do. But guns are the killers. Guns in people's hands are killing people. They're killing children out here who are playing on the street and catching a stray bullet because some jerk is shooting at another jerk. And he misses. You know, because like in the movies, you could shoot somebody and you're going to shoot them and knock them down every time. That's movie shit. Unless you walk up on them, they're not shooting them like that. They're running at each other or they're shooting a half a block away. and They don't care. Long guns, they shoot with rifles. So my justification was, I could care less about that dope. I mean, I made some sizable dope arrests in my career, pretty big ones. But at the time I was there, working on that gang tactical team in the 7th District, I concentrated on the guns because that's what the administration at City Hall wanted. That's what the police brass wanted. And that's what my bosses at the district level wanted. So get some guns. Guns were the were the, the driving force for that. So I get these guys dirty. That's what I call it with dope, selling dope. And I make a deal with them and say, give me some guns and you're gone. I'll let you out of the car. But not until we get the guns. So give me a house that has some guns in it. We get those guns. That guy would be sitting in another car block or two away. We cut him loose. We tell the guys who were holding them out of boots. To me as a layman, that sounds totally legit. You're doing your job. No, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's not, yeah, no, it's, it's not legit. I mean, it's a good thing. And, and I always thought it was a good thing. And I equated it to be a good thing because I just thought I could, I, I give two fucks about the dope. There were guys uh, that I worked with, not as partners, but in the tech unit or on the watch. And man, they set up on these dope spots, Neil. And they'd watch the fucking dope spot for two, three hours out of an abandoned building or off a rooftop in an abandoned building. And, that, you know, they're calling it out. You can hear them on a car to car, which is a closed band only for the fat cats. And you drive, you know, two blocks away and you hear him. Yeah, he's, he's going in there right now and he's getting it's in the mailbox in the building. I'm thinking, are you fucking kidding me, dude? You're set four hours. And then you'd see him at a station like an hour or two, three hours later. And they'd be in there and they'd have 40 rocks of crack. Four fucking hours for 40 rocks? Dude, you didn't have to set up a surveillance with that. You'd just fucking chase some guy who ran and get the same thing. 
the rest of it was a big dope. And I was fortunate enough later in my career where I got lucky and got some big, big amounts of dope in incidents. Truly, the guns were what drove me and drove the guys I worked with. Did you have apprehension about doing this ever? As a young cop, are you going, well, I can't do that. That's Someone had to teach you to do this. No, as a young, as a young cop, I didn't do it. I caught somebody with some dope. They went to jail. How did you advance to this point? Did you see this behavior? Of course I did. I worked with guys on the watch when I was new. And I saw the way they did stuff. And then I said, well, that's got to be the way to do it. Neil, you can go to any of the narcotic branches at the time when I was on the job. And you would have guys there. And you could sit in the jury box or, you know, most of the time that's where we sat. because There was no jury. Wait for your case to be called. And every fucking story, every case report was the same. I don't care if it was from a week or three weeks ago or two months. It was probably longer than that because it took 21 days usually to get in the court, minimum. So let's say you're sitting there and you're listening to the policeman get sworn in and he raises his right hand about to give the testimony and he does and uh, 99.9% of the case report said observed, uh, exited my vehicle upon observing the defendant turned away from me and threw a clear plastic bag to the ground while running away. Clean. Every fucking case report was the same, Neil. It was like, you know, you went to template A, go case, and you wrote that. You're looking for probable cause to go to the trial. Probable cause is a number of things. Uh, for one, uh, you have to have probable cause, of course. If it was under a gram, generally, a gram of, of dope, crack, or powder cocaine, or heroin, uh, generally, there was no probable cause. And if you knew if it was under a gram, you could still send it to court. You can arrest them, but you're going to get no probable cause, but you were going to get your three hours overtime. There were guys that knew how to gain the system. Uh, lock people up for less than a gram because they got in there as soon as their case got called, uh, there'd be a finding of no probable cause. They'll say it's such and such weight. The moment you went to court, you were getting overtime. So there were cops that would say this guy got less than the amount to meet the probable cause threshold, but it doesn't matter. I'm still going to ring him up because I'm going to get overtime. That is correct. And if you're in and out of court in a half hour, you still get paid a minimum of three hours. That's what the agreement with the union and the city was. So just stepping in court was a three-hour minimum. That's correct. That's correct. Neil, and you know what? I, I don't hold it against those guys. That's their, that's their business. Uh, if they choose to do that, fine. But truly, there are guys who are making... Uh, $150,000, $200,000 a year. It's so fucking stupid. It's so stupid. But did uh, the department ever catch on to this? I don't mean to laugh, but I can't even imagine doing something like that. Did the department catch on to this, or is it just a quiet bleeding out of the taxpayer? Well, let's put it this way, Neil. How do you tell a policeman who comes across a guy with, and you're not a chemist, so you don't know what the substance is, and you don't have a scale with you on the street, so you don't know what the weight is, 
So you take them in, and it just so happens that it's less than a grand. You can't let them go. That's a felony. Because then you can get fucking jammed up and get arrested. So the guy's going to jail. And I can understand the police officer's position. Because why would you jeopardize your career or your freedom for some shitbag? You're doing your job. You're doing your job. And the thing is, if this was California, it'd be a different story. Because you wouldn't be going to dope court for that kind of shit. But in Illinois, the way things are going here now, that could very well change with this drug stuff, certain weights and everything. I haven't seen this new crime bill, J.B. Pritzker passed, so who knows? There were guys that solely did dope arrests because it was not a lot of effort and the payoff was good because you're going to get overtime. And if you play your cards right and you make the arrest a half hour before you get off, <laughs> you're, you're double banging it, man. You're getting overtime that night or that day, plus you're getting court time. Yeah, the old double dip. So back to this moment when you see for the first time or you you experience guys who are more seasoned than you doing this, not arresting the individual on the dope, but flipping them for guns. Did you pause at this or are mm-hmm. you like, this is kind of brilliant? Were you just caught up in it because that's what everybody's doing and your bosses are approving of it? How did you get over the line of being, this is okay? I didn't really think about it, you know, truly. I saw guys where the arrests were made and then they brought the guy in a while later and then they had some guns and then the guy wasn't charged with the dope. He got like a disorderly conduct or something. I I didn't I didn't think it was I didn't think it was wrong uh, because like I said when you when you think about it uh, Neil truly you're not winning the war on fucking drugs man you're not especially you know ten bags at a time uh, so if you can get guns off the street okay uh, is it is it right I don't know I thought it was is it legal no you cannot pass judgment as far as like a you know you get somebody. Uh, for a felony, you can't say, well, you're going to cut them loose like you're the, the judge. You can't adjudicate their case right on the street. It's just it's not possible. So it's it's illegal. But this was very common. Yeah, yeah, it was common. And was that when you first entered the 7th District or when you came back to the 7th? Yeah, when I, when I, yeah, sure. My opinion is, like I said, I didn't feel it was wrong. And, and like I said, I just... To me, I, I didn't give it a second thought, you know, because uh, the dope, I didn't give two fucks about. I could also see an environment that you're jumping into a culture that accepts this and it's moving fast and the adrenaline's going and you're getting approval from the bosses. So why would you stop this behavior? You're leveling up to getting bad stuff off the street. I get the environment. Is it talked about up the food chain? Do your bosses know? They must know what's going on, but it's like a quiet thing. Well, let's put it this way. Uh, you know, those guys, they didn't come on as police lieutenants. They didn't come on as police sergeants or police commanders. They all started in a blue shirt. 
can't speak for them. You could see some guys where I come across, like some lieutenants and captains, because I was working citywide at one time. So I would come across a captain or a lieutenant or even a commander. And you'd look at them. They did not have one department accommodation on their shirt. They didn't have uh, any ribbons at all. Now, that's not to say that some guys didn't wear their ribbons, because I knew some guys that didn't wear their ribbons. It was kind of like a stripe. You deserved it. You worked for that. That's nationwide. It's going to wear their ribbons. But there's guys who were house mouses, good test takers, became sergeants, lieutenants, knew somebody, you know, became commanders, deputy chiefs, never did a day's work. But it is what it is, like I said. Nonetheless, I, as a policeman, as a patrolman, that's the way I operated. And I prefer to get guns than dope. And the people you rolled up were more than happy to provide the information versus going to jail. Did you ever run across somebody that said, hey, you can't be doing this? Or they just didn't give a shit? No, I never ran across anybody. Listen, I'll tell you this too. Me, myself, personally. uh, I came across guys who, I mean, you know, eventually you get a sense of who's a straight fucking liar and who's not, okay? There's some people who will tell you everything. They'll tell you everything and anything just to get out of that car and those cuffs. But there are truly some guys that you can tell, and man, I, I don't know anything. Oh, fuck, man. If I knew, I, I'd tell you. And you knew they were telling you the truth because they, didn't, they couldn't take the case. They couldn't go back to prison or go to jail or violate their probation or parole. And there were a few of those guys that I just said, you know what? These fuck, this guy's being straight legit. Okay, he's out here selling dope, but you know what? I'm going to cut this fucking guy loose. But I tell him, you owe me. The next time I fucking see you, dude, you better have something for me. You better give me a little fucking information on something that helps me out because it's going to help you out in the long run. I'm going to cut you loose today, but you fucking owe me. And did it always work? No. But I probably can count on one hand where guys would get back to me where I'd see them again and they'd give me some good information. Hey, you know that, that shooting over and such and such? Yeah, you might want to talk to this guy. So they're telling me that's the guy that did it, but they're not telling me indirectly. You might want to talk to this guy. You know what I mean? Sometimes it would work out. That's just considered good policing. Yeah. I mean, it's not legal. That's for sure. It's against the rules. But you know what, Neil? It's, you got to do more than bend the rules. Sometimes you got to break the rules. Do you have any guilt about that? Does that bother you to this day? The issues that you had down the no. line, which we'll get to, that's a different ball but of that stuff do you have any guilt about no that? uh-uh no no because and i get that guy and i put him in jail and let's say for instance he wins the case anyway do you think he's going to say you know what i'm not going to sell fucking dope anymore he's going to be back out there and he's going to be back selling dope because he's making money selling dope so that fucking opportunity for him is greater than taking a chance and saying, you know what? Maybe I'm going to give up the dope business because he gave me a chance. Fuck no. He's going to go back and sell dope again. But the thing is, like I said, hey, if I can use them to get some information on somebody or get more guns off the street, 
that's what I'm going to do. And, and I did it every time. You're going to get fortunate enough to stop somebody who's got a gun in their car. You're going to get fortunate enough to get the foot chase. Somebody is running with a gun. You're going to get fortunate enough to find some guns when you're looking in an abandoned building, find some guns. You know, no one's going to jail on that, but you still get those guns because they're hiding those guns in an abandoned building. Fuck it. You're in there looking around, just looking around, and there they are. They're up on the duck work in a, in, a, in a basement by the furnace, or they're hidden in a fucking wall that's got a hole in it or something. Hey, I'll take those too. Care less about the dope. That would later change, you know, in my career when I got some big, big hits, you know, big, big dope arrests. And, th- and that was exhilarating. Seriously, it was. When you, when you get that type of quantity, and, you know, but those people, those people went to jail. You know, like you can't fucking let them go. Especially when you got fifteen million dollars in cocaine, two thousand pounds of marijuana, you're not cutting them loose. Most of the time, those guys aren't giving anybody up anyway, because they were probably right in the cartel level. They're not. They're not giving anybody up because it's going to be their life. How would you matriculate those guns back into the process? How did they get back? Do you have to file reports? Oh yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Most of the time, the reports were not truthful because the simple fact was you could not say that you got a guy for dope who gave you a house that led to the recovery of six guns and three arrests. You would put in there that concerned citizen gave you that information. You go and get those guns and you lock up those guys who had the guns. But, you know, you could not, you could not put that person uh, into the case report or the arrest reports of the other individuals because they're going to be dragged into court, identified, and killed. You know, we would do search warrants uh, at that time. Uh, we had a guy on my team. He was a great search warrant writer. And sometimes we take these guys down. They weren't too happy about it, but we'd take them down, you know, to a judge. And they would be a John Doe. And that's how they would be presented in front of the judge and say that they've, you know, seen those weapons because they've been there purchasing narcotics. And then do the search warrant. Sometimes we didn't do search warrants. Sometimes we just went to the house and got into the house and locked them up and got the guns. How did you file that report? What was the probable cause to say you went to the house? The probable cause was we're driving down the street and we see a guy standing on the porch and he runs into the house. And we chase him in there in hot pursuit. There were a lot of hot pursuit case reports. We weren't the only ones doing it. There were a lot because hot pursuit gives you the right to chase somebody into a house that uh, you suspect is committing a crime. And in these cases, that was not happening. You were just basically kicking the door down? Yes. Or when they did run, we just ran right in right after without a warrant. Basically illegal, but it wasn't Mr. Smith who uh, was going to University of Notre Dame. These guys were some bad dudes. These guys were gangbangers and in the prison probably had shot somebody. Some had murdered people. So, you know, we weren't looking for Mr. Johnson who worked uh, at some uh, manufacturing company in Englewood and lived there every day, worked there. These dudes were, these dudes were bangers. How did you do your homework if Bobby gave you the information Mm -hmm. and you brought him in front of the judges, John Doe, how did you do your homework knowing that five guns were at Steve's house? What homework would you do to make sure that Steve actually lived there 
and that the guns were there without running into the issue of, oh, fuck, I went to the wrong house. Oh, and that happened. That happened. But what you did, you had some tools that were available to you. One of them at the time, which is stopped now, was called a utility check. So you could call the gas company. They were great for it. Or Commonwealth Edison. Or the phone company. They had a 24-hour line. And you would call them on the PACS. They had a PACS line. It was installed by the uh, city. And you would say, Finnegan from the South District, I'd like a utility check on 6319 South Sangamon Avenue. Okay, stand by. There's some clicking on a typewriter on the uh, computer keyboard, I mean. You ready? Yeah. That resident who has a service account there is Jeffrey Wilson, and he has uh, had service in such and such state. Lives in the first floor at that residence. Okay, sir, thank you very much. Can I get your name? And then you get the name, and you put that in your information for your search warrant, and you know that when you talk to your co-affiant, which is what the person is called, who's going to swear in front of the judge, that you're looking for uh, Jeffrey Wilson. Do you know Jeffrey Wilson? Yeah, that's, I'm not going to say the word, but that's, uh, you know, the guy that lives there. That's what they would say. You'd say, how long do you know him? Well, how do you know him? I buy shit off him all the time. What do you buy off him? By crack, man. You don't want sometimes I sell stuff, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Now, how do you know he's got guns in it? I see him with my own eyes. What'd you see? What type of gun? And you make him explain it to you and describe it. So you would have to do due diligence on that to, to make that search warrant. And then, like I said, the search warrant, the judge would sign it. You would take it to, first you would have to take it to the felony review. The state's attorney, they would review it. And then once you did that, then you could take it to the judge for the judge's signature. And then you would have to execute it within 72 hours. So you go back and you draw it up on the board. This is what it looks like. It's a gray house, gray brick house. It's got an entry door on the right, entry door on the left. We're going to the entry door on the left, the first floor. There's a dog. There's two women and a child and a man. So-and-so lives there. So basically, you would have that planned out on the whiteboard, and then you would go there and execute the search warrant, take sledgehammers and the Chicago bar, it's called, which is a crowbar type, uh, and, you know, break the door down. You do a no-knock. They don't do those. I guess they made it how they don't do them anymore. And I guess now the city is going to the point where you can't do a search warrant after 7 p.m. at night. So you're safe. If you got all your dope in your house, bring it there at 7 o'clock at night because the police in Chicago aren't going to do a search warrant from 7 p.m. to like 6 a.m. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah, Futterman's pushing that. Who's Futterman? Uh, Craig Futterman. He's a professor at the University of Chicago. He's got that Mandel Law Clinic. You know, I've been sued by him. That defies. Yeah, it, does, it defies police work. We did do, like on the search warrants, Neil, we did our due diligence and we prepared. Now, did it always go right? No. Sometimes they would lie to you. So you go in there and you didn't find a fucking gun and you didn't find dope. And then that guy was going to jail. The guy who gave you the information because he fucking lied to you. 
So because he thought he was going to be able to lie to you and you were going to cut a loose, but that ain't the case. You hold on until that search warrant's done. And then there were other issues, like I said, sometimes, you know, you didn't get a search warrant. So we just went there and went in the house and searched without a warrant. What would motivate you to do that versus the search warrant process? Well, sometimes you would think that it wasn't going to be there because the information, like say, for instance, if you grab the guy off the street and all of a sudden this guy tells this guy, hey, man, police grab so-and-so. Well, so-and-so is one of the guys. So now they know that so-and-so, maybe he's not the best guy to have in police custody because he might open his mouth. So now what you want to do is as soon as you grab so-and-so, you want to go to that house he's giving you because otherwise that shit's not going to be there. We would go there and get into the house. I mean, I, you know, I took, uh, I, I would take pictures of guys. I'd write on the, on the back, Jimmy Baker, wanted for a quadruple murder out of Effingham, Illinois. And I go knock on the door, open the door. The lady would be talking through the big barred door. And, you know, I'd show her a picture. I go, where's he at? I don't know him. I listen, don't fucking lie to me. I know he's here because we got a call, but he's hiding here. And he's wanted for murder, and you're going down with him if you keep him in here and don't give him up. He ain't in here. I go, okay, fuck it. You're going to jail. We're going to knock the door down. I'm opening the door. Come on in and look. He ain't in here. You ain't going in there looking for Jimmy Baker for a fucking quadruple murder. That's how you get in the house. Now you know, and you're in the fucking house, and you start finding the dope in the gun. So did I lie? Yeah. But it worked. Is it right? Probably not. This is in this window of time when you go back to 7th? Yeah, and then when I was in SOS, I mean, I kind of pretty much did the same thing. But this started when you went back to the 7th District? Yeah, because I had just gone on a tag team. Although I shouldn't say when it went back, when I just went back to 7th. I mean, we just got more and more guns. It was just amazing. But when I was in Gaines West, we were doing curb to curb because they were putting us somewhere different every night. So on the flying squad, pretty much did whatever you found on the street. But I mean, there were some times we went in houses there too because the information led to it. But in the 7th District, we put a pretty big dent in what was going on there, Neil. I mean, the arrests, and, and I'm not saying me and myself and my partner and, and the other guy, Ed, I'm talking, I'm talking the whole tag team for the most part. I mean, there were some guys that just did strictly go the tag team and even the watch there. That's what they called the guys that were, you know, going out every day to beat cars like we used to do. They were the police, man. They were the working police. There were some bums. Every watch has it. Every district has them. But the fucking police worked in that district. Like a lot of districts. Those days are over. Was a success rate part of this mentality that as a group, this unit, just a level Super Bowl squad because of why? What made it so great and effective? Yeah, you're not tied down to the radio on the taxi when you're in the district, okay? Unless they run out of cars, they're not calling you. You just go out there and operate. So you're out there looking for a bad guy every day. And the beat guys are doing the same thing. The beat guys, unfortunately, and I was in that situation. You know, you can't hunt as much because you're getting fucking banged on the radio constantly for calls from serious shit to bullshit. You know, dog barking, kids playing basketball in the street. Well, what the fuck? What do you want them to do? 
of the tag team, you have the ability to go out there and not be tied down to the radio unless they're out of cars. Then they'll say, is there a tag unit available in the seventh district that can assist on this call? You're going to say, yeah, you're going to come up. If you're not down on something, doing something, you're going to say, yeah, throw it on the box, you know, which is the computer, and we'll check it out for you. Because you're the fucking police, man, and you got to help the other coppers out that are out there too. But the thing is, you were not tied down to the radio, so you had the ability to go out there and hunt more than when you're on a beat car. It had its good things and bad things. You roll up Steve. He's going to give you information on these five guns. You got to go to the judge. You got to get the warrant. How many pockets of that are you dealing with at one time? Five, 20, 50? How do you manage that? Uh, there's only so many hours in a day. You know, and truly, the search warrant process is the legal way and the right way. But it's very, very tight. So if you know fucking Johnny Bobo's fucking got six guns in his house and he's a fucking thug gangbanger. Sometimes you just said, fuck it. You just went and got the guns of Johnny Bobo. And probably I shouldn't say sometime. I should have said more times. Uh, for a while, initially, we were doing a shitload of warrants. And then it got to the point where the fucking warrants, like I said, it was just sometimes the state's attorney's office. You know, we'll go back and make sure this or make sure that. Or this, you know, fuck you. It's just long and drawn and dragged out. You know what? People say, well, tough shit. That's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, okay. It is. But you know what? If fucking Johnny Bobo's got those guns. I'm going to go get them. I'm not fucking getting a search warrant every time. Is it legal? No. A lot of times I got people to sign consent to search warrants. And they sign the consent to search warrants, which are also legally binding. What does that mean? Well, grandma's in the house, and it's her house. And let's say her nephew uh, lives in the basement. Well, he's got his buddies over there and they're smoking weed all the time. And he's bringing his fucking girlfriends over there. And Grammy ain't happy about it, but she ain't going to throw her nephew out. So, or grandson, I should say. So you get to the house and you talk to grandma and you pull her aside and you say, Grand, listen, here's the deal. Your nephew here, Jeffrey, is he's selling dope out of your house. And this is your house, Graham. And Cook County's going to take your house in the city. Because they're going to make this a nuisance house. Your, your grandson's selling dope out of here. So Graham would say, oh, Lord, you know, this and that. And he's got some guns in here. And he's got all these thugs hanging out here. And I tell him all the time, okay, well, we'd like to go down there and get that stuff out of here. Okay. And she'd sign the consent to search for him. We'd go down there. He, he's getting locked up. And then we find the dope and the guns. And he's taking them to jail. And he'd be yelling, like, why'd you do this to me, Grandma? But Grandma didn't do anything to you, dude. You did it to yourself. That's legal. That's legal. Did we do that all the time, too? No. I'd go in the houses, and I didn't have to have search once or even consent. And then I would get the guns. I would fucking lock these guys up. And then I would have to fashion a story to have probable cause to do that. So it would be made up. Were you worried at all that you were ever going to get busted for this in this window of time? No, uh, because it was, <laughs> it was, it was so fucking widespread, man. Everybody was doing it. Did the judges know, did they know and it was wink, wink or, or just depended on the individual or it was just tacit or they didn't give a shit? Well, 
Well, I, here's the thing. Um, I, you're not going to share that detail with the state's attorney. You'd be a moron to do that. Okay. So you're going to stick to your case report. So when you come to court, the state's attorney is going to see that case report. They're, they're already prepping it and looking at it before the trial. If it goes to probable cause and, and you get probable cause. So when it goes to the trial rules and it's going to go up and it goes a number of times. And, you know, some of these dudes hire private attorneys, most of them. Some get public defenders. You're going to testify and they're going to try to cross you up. Uh, and they, and they get you sometimes. They get you. So some of those guys were good. They were good attorneys. Some of them not so good. But you could never admit that you falsified that case report or that arrest report. They weren't onto it in any way, shape, or form, nor did they care. You just didn't know. It was just like, it didn't matter. It was all about the case report, and everyone was marching to that. Uh, I don't think they had a sense. They might have. These guys get paid to prosecute people. That's their job. They're looking for promotions, too. You win some cases, you're going to get a promotion or get a better assignment. So do I think they knew? Maybe. I can't prove that, but in some cases, you didn't get probable cause, so they didn't have to worry about it coming to trial. How many Johnny Bobos were you doing at one time? Oh, Neil, uh, varied. I mean, you know, you went out there looking every day and got guns, but sometime uh, you get guys on the street with guns, so you wouldn't have to get into consent to searches or going into a house without a warrant. But there were a lot of arrests, Neil. I made a, I made a, a lot of arrests for that time I was back in the 7th District on a game taxi. So you're like in the eye of the storm. It is just every day wall to wall, whether it's stuff you were working on a day prior, weeks prior to that day to what's coming in front of you. You're just on this fucking habit trail, right? It's nonstop. Sometimes you'd work with double shift there. Uh, you get a house and then you get a guy in there and you're, dude, you're, you're fucked. You're a convicted felon. Dude, you're going back to the joint, dude. Well, you know, what are you, what are you going to do for yourself? Fuck you. Okay, well, fuck you. Have a nice life. Well, what do you want? What are you going to do for me? Well, give me some more bigger than this. So sometimes it would roll and you go to another house and you get 10 guns. Or you go to another house after that and get four more guns. One, one. I mean, this wasn't in seven, but when I was in SOS, we got 24 guns in one night. Going house to house. And they were all the same gang. It was the Latin Disciples, I believe it was. We got the leader on the very first stop with a gun and dope. That was like winning the lottery, man. Because he fucking was giving up everybody he knew. Because he was, he was a three-time loser on the case. So he was calling away for 40 years. That was a matter of rolling one person that got you to the next or, oh, you got him initially and then he just spilled and it was just dominoes. Oh, yeah. 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 We got him in his, and I said, she, 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 and, and he handed her the gun and she, she sat on it, put it under, you know, under her ass. Honestly, I couldn't believe he didn't take off, but she was in the car with him probably. Yeah. You know, I just said, fuck it. She's going too. fuck her. We're charging her with the gun. She took it out of his hand, put it under her ass. We got 24 guns that night. We're going to stop there. That concludes conversation six. Stay connected for conversation seven. When we discuss in detail the complaints that Jerry starts to accumulate and what that does to his career. 
Don't forget to follow us also on Twitter at Finnegan's Take. And follow me, Neil Edelstein, at Neil Edelstein. Thank you for listening. Here's that beautiful music. <laughs>